You have no idea the amount of warfare that's been going on in many of our lives who are in ministry. You have no idea. We're at a pivotal time in the church and in history, friends. And I just want to warn you not to play church. When I was encouraging you to shout out a little bit during that song, that worship song, um, I'm just assuming those who aren't shouting or raising their hands, you never do that during a football game or anything. So I just want to assume that. Uh, but, but it's been amazing. We are not, Scripture tells us, we are not unaware of the enemy's schemes. He hates us. He hates you if you claim the name of Christ. If you want to be an ambassador for Christ, he hates you. And the powers of hell will try to get to you somehow. Scripture tells us the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus came to bring us life, and that abundantly. What does abundant life mean? Does it mean a life free from problems? No. Does it mean a life free from spiritual warfare? No. Comfort? Luxury? prosperity, abundance? No, not necessarily. It can. But Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. That was free and not part of the lesson. We did not know. Last week, uh, I preached um, on prayer and spiritual warfare, and we were not online. Half the congregation is at home looking for us. How can we get the message? They couldn't hear the message. That's the enemy, friends. That's the enemy. And it's not just this church. It's probably happening in a lot of churches across the country, a lot of churches who are about sound doctrine and want God's will to be done and are not trying to be like this world or conform to the world. Those churches are getting hit with warfare, and we need your prayers. Anybody that's in ministry, a nonprofit or a ministry trying to do God's work, we need your prayers. If you are in ministry, you need prayer. So last week... People have no idea that we even had a service because it wasn't available, if, unless you were here. This week, I just, we were just working on this technology. It was supposed to be set to go, and, and then I found out, okay, we're not, we're not streaming today. And I'm going, all right, Lord, <laughs> this, this is good. That means we're on the enemy's radar when he starts pulling stuff like this. How many of you know he can work in technology and he can screw things up and tempt you? And, but you know what? God will be glorified somehow. Someone said it was working right when the worship was ending or whatever, maybe during the worship, it kicked on. And our guy, our tech guy, can't be here because his wife is compromised with the immune system. So he's working from home. He said all of a sudden it kicked in. I don't know what happened. Well, we prayed. Isn't that interesting? So apparently now, hi, everybody. You don't know how close you were to not being able to hear this word. So now I'll get into the true message today, but... Um, God brought this across my email. Actually, this is another freebie before I get into the message. This came into my email inbox yesterday. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, and 4, it's a word that um, Christians should not be surprised when the Lord returns. Only non-Christians, people that don't believe, they're going to be surprised when Jesus comes back. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, and 4 says, while they are saying, 
peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pangs upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, (laughs) I'm Italian. (laughs) You, brothers and sisters, you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. But there are souls to win and battles to fight while we're here. Um, we are to do God's work. Jesus said, work, work while you have the light. And how many of you understand that it's not just America? The world is getting darker. Whether you think that's physically or spiritually, both would apply. Work while you have the light. Christians were not meant to isolate. We are meant to infiltrate. Otherwise, Jesus is a liar and wasted his words by telling people to be the salt and light. Salt, a preserving, flavoring influence in culture of godliness and biblical morality. That's salt. Light that shines the light of Christ points to heaven and exposes the darkness. If that's not happening in our country, why is it not happening? So do you think it's happening? I already know you know the answer to this. Think about Hollywood, government, corporations, the university system, public education, the media. Are they being preserved by the salt? Are they being shined upon with the light of Christ? And I would venture to say no, but that's just my thoughts. So we are to occupy until Christ's Christ returns. What does that look like? What does it mean, occupy? We're in Nehemiah chapter 4 today. That's what God put on my heart to share with you at this crucial time in American history, in the history of the church, and frankly, in, in our world, because so much hinges on Christians in America. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, He who fears the face of God does not fear the face of man. He who fears the face of man does not fear the face of God. Most of you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the probably one-third of German pastors that rebelled against Hitler. He was even part of a plan to assassinate Hitler. And he was killed a couple weeks before the Allies invaded Germany and the war came to an end. But he was one that said silence... He was standing up for injustice. What was injustice at that time? They were trying to wipe out the Jewish people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. God will not hold us, the church, guiltless. Is there evil in our country today? Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Throughout Scripture, from the very beginning of time, um, people, the people of God have faced tremendous opposition and constant uh, pressure. Persecution, right? 
But as we, I read Hebrews 12 before the service got started, um, we have a great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. Many examples that should encourage our faith and um, many examples that we can apply to the times in which we live. So today, what I hope God will do through this instrument, this vessel, is to communicate to you from his word um, to each of us how to persevere, how to press into Jesus, how to seek his face and take action. What do I mean by that? Do the work that God, God called you to do. He didn't call me to do what he gave you to do. He didn't call you to do what he wants me to do. He didn't call you to do what he wants you guys to do. Because we're all given different talents, abilities. We're all put in different places in society, in our communities. We all have a sphere of influence. So the church is reeling from relentless assaults by the enemy. Um, now, attacks by the enemy should not surprise us, right? We know from Scripture. <laughs> we know the enemy will attack. He'll try to thwart God's plans. Job 42.2 says, Ah, Lord God, uh, I know that, that no plan of yours can be thwarted. You know all things, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. So, if it's God's plan, he will use weak vessels in these flesh and blood tents like you and I have, to do his work until we die and are glorified, praise God, and are with him, or until he returns to take us home. So, um, knowing the hour is late, what should alarm us is not the attacks of the enemy, not the spiritual warfare, we know, right? But the apathy and indifference of people should alarm us. That's what should concern us. So what do we do? How do we affect that? How do we impact that? And I hope and pray that every one of us, when we leave here, don't just hunker down the rest of the week. Don't just stay at home. I'm safe. Don't just go to our jobs and not talk to anybody. I just want to get through my job. If I can get through my job and not argue with anybody and just do what I'm called to do, I just do what I'm paid to do. <laughs> not what I'm called to do by the Lord Jesus Christ as an ambassador for Christ, but what I'm paid to do. <laughs> Um, so, in Nehemiah 4, a little review, a little, little bit of history. A couple questions. How did God's people respond to the daunting task to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in the face of threats, opposition, intimidation? Um, what strategies did Nehemiah implement, and how did they prepare for battle as they continued doing God's work? The name Nehemiah means Jehovah Comforts. Scholars believe the books of Nehemiah and Ezra were once a single book. In fact, um, they suggest the book of Nehemiah was once called Second Ezra. Ezra wrote them bo both. Nehemiah is from Nehemiah's personal diaries, but Ezra wrote both books. So um, the primary theme is the hand of the Lord, but if you want to put four historical and theological themes to Nehemiah, just to bring us up to speed here. Number one, careful attention to the reading of God's word. Pregnant pause. Not just so that we would know it, in order that we would do his will. Careful reading and attention to God's word so that they would do his will. 
You don't just read it and take it in and go, I'm good to go, Lord. Boy, I have all this knowledge. Number two, Nehemiah's obedience. The third theme would be enemy opposition. And that's what we're going to talk about today because we're seeing opposition in this in our church, in this nation, and in the culture as a whole. Also, number four, the good hand of God and his sovereignty. So Nehemiah would eventually become a governor. (laughs) So you don't know that from the beginning. He's a servant to the king, right? But he would eventually, after what we're going to study today, he would later on become governor of Jerusalem. Wait a minute. Oh, I didn't know you were going to talk about politics, David. How can you not talk about politics? Did you know that politics and religion are the most important things that we could talk about? So Nehemiah started out, why? (laughs) I should say why. Because they affect every aspect of our lives. Religion, faith, that impacts our heart, whether we are saved eternally or not, and whether we are called as ambassadors to go and preach the gospel to others. So Religion affects our lives, and it should affect others' lives through us. That's why we should always talk about religion. Why politics? Ooh, that's yucky. Because someone's morality will be legislated in Washington, D.C. It's either going to be for Christ or anti-Christ. God or man. We're talking worldview, legislation, government, Authority that will pass laws and rules that will affect every one of us. That's why that worldview is so important. So Nehemiah was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Our focus today will be on chapter 4. But I want to just give you an idea of what happens in chapter 1 just briefly. Uh, The book opens with Nehemiah receiving a sad, surprising report from Jerusalem. And it grieves him to the point of tears and mourning. And that led to this great prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm just going to read a couple, just a couple of verses from between verses 5 to 11. He said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, hear the prayer of your servant. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments. In verse 10, it says, Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Let your servant prosper this day. And chapter 2 starts out telling us that God answered his prayer. How? He gave him favor, big time, with King Artaxerxes. You're taking a chance with your life if you're going to be sad in the presence of a king. When Nehemiah heard this report, he went to his regular duties to serve the king, and he was downcast. The king asked him, what, are you sick or something? You know, no one's ever downcast in the presence of the king. He told him what happened. I heard this report. It grieves my heart. He asked for permission. So he showed great faith. And he wanted to go inspect the walls of Jerusalem. So the end of chapter 2, he already was mocked by enemies hearing that he wanted, this, this guy, this Jew wanted to go do something in Jerusalem to, to rebuild the walls or do God's work over there. What an what a idiot. You know? So they're mocking him, right? So the end of chapter 2, verse 20, Nehemiah 2.20, So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. 
Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. So that's what Nehemiah said to his enemies. So chapter 3 then is basically a move ahead in time where people were gathering there to do the work. And it's basically a who's who of Jewish families that are not only doing the work of rebuilding these walls, these vast city walls that are spread out in this massive area in Jerusalem, but it tells them what part of the wall they were working on. I mean, this is like Luke, who is like a meticulous Dr. Luke, right, who wrote Luke and Acts. He's a meticulous writer. He would have been a true journalist today, not like you hear in our culture today. There's no more journalism. But Luke was just a phenomenal, meticulous, uh, just attentive detail. That's, that's what they did. So chapter 3 is a who's who. Who built the wall, where they worked on the wall, where they inhabited, what, what gate they repaired, valley gate, fountain gate, refuse gate, uh, who worked on the broad wall, and they, all these names, and they named the family. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So that's chapter 3. Now, so let's pick it up in chapter 4. Enemies of God heard the people. They heard now. They just heard these people, the surrounding enemies, right? Those, did you hear what, what's going on? Those Jews are in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the walls around the city after however many years, right? So under Nehemiah's leadership, they were jealous and they were angry. It's like the audacity, right? So the first thing they did was use the weapon of mocking. 2 Peter 3.3 3 says in, in the last days, mockers will come. Uh, scoffers, they will scoff at you Christians who believe in this returning Messiah that still is sovereign over the universe today, the creator. Scoffers, mockers, they're here today, aren't they? Well, Nehemiah's time, they didn't want them to do the work of God, right? So they were mocking and scoffing. Now, not much has changed today as far as tactics of the enemy But get this, if the enemy can discourage Christians from doing things for the Lord, building up the church, building up other Christians, equipping the saints, sharing the gospel, impacting our culture, preserving culture with biblical morality, shining the light in the darkness, if he can discourage Christians, he wins before we even get started. If he can discourage us from beginning the work, So that's what he's trying to do before they even started the work. So like I said earlier, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So Satan seeks to destroy a believer's assurance of salvation. That's one thing. He'll want you to question whether you're saved or not. But we know we have the assurance of salvation. We have that Holy Spirit that's a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. What are the weapons? Doubt and discouragement are the main weapons. So now let's just go through Nehemiah 4 here. And I've got the New American Standard, but I'm going to read from what most of you, I understand, have, the New King James. So I'll read that, Nehemiah 4. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the enemy of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Ha, ha, ha. That's, I inserted that. <laughs> Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish? 
(laughs) Stones that have been burned? Verse 3, now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, (laughs) whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. How did Nehemiah respond? Verse 4, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Verse 6, so we built the wall. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Amorites, and the Ashdodites Ashdodites, heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were being closed, they became angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing. Remember, they're halfway done here. And there's too much, there's so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they will never know nor see anything until we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was, when the Jews who dwelt near them came, they they told us ten times, From whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and I rose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard, again, they heard, the enemies heard, that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with with the other they held a weapon. One of the most important verses in here, you guys. So that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. And at the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem that they may be our guard by night and and a working party by day. 
verse 23, So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. So the first couple verses in Nehemiah 4, Sanballat and Tobiah were first deeply disturbed, it says. Not just disturbed, deeply disturbed. Whenever there's an adjective before a word that's given to, to explain a situation, pay attention because that means it's heightened. There's a point that they're trying to communicate. Deeply disturbed when they heard a man, some guy wanted to help Jerusalem and the city and the people. Uh, they used scorn and intimidation to prevent the work from starting, they were, like we explained from Nehemiah chapter 2. But now that the work had begun, what does it say? They were furious and very indignant. Not just indignant, it should be enough, right? We understand what that is, but they were very indignant. The audacity of those Jews. Discouragement is such a powerful weapon. Why? Because it's somewhat the opposite of faith. Where faith believes God and his promises, discouragement looks for and believes the worst. And tends to, when you're discouraged, a discouraged person uh, pretty much forgets about God, what his word says, if you know it, and what God has promised to do. And the hope that we have in the future when you're discouraged. Critics who bring nothing but discouragement often miss what God is doing now. Because they don't like the wall. <laughs> they don't like how it's being built or whatever. They can't believe it's God's work, right? One thing I found that's in interesting about this uh, is that there's no specific commandment in Scripture to rebuild a, a wall, but that's what God led Nehemiah to do, right? This would help the city. This would help the people. Um, it, it, there's no specific command for Jerusalem or Israel to build this thing, for a country to build a wall. Um, there's no specific command to protect your people with the wall or to keep out those who would want to get through the wall. It's interesting. But from the book of Genesis, the Bible teaches about the importance of borders national borders, city borders, family borders. We might use the word boundaries today. You, we need healthy boundaries, don't we? And the enemy, enemy will try to break those down in his different ways, in his different tactics. Um, so we are called to work, pray, build, minister, Minister, as I said earlier, endure, speak the truth. Bottom line, trust God. That's at the root of everything, isn't it? Faith in the face of opposition, which is the title of today's message. Faith in the face of opposition. Trust God. Hebrews 10, 36 and 38 says, For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, 
My soul has no pleasure in him. We have need of endurance, friends. And his response that we mentioned earlier, Nehemiah 4 through 6, uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, pray, hear, O our God. His response is a great example to us. He didn't debate. He didn't form a committee. He didn't seek other opinions. He didn't even deal with the enemies directly. Instead, he took it to God in prayer immediately. Uh, for Nehemiah, prayer was a first resource, not a last resort. That's one point to get from this. First resource. He's not, it didn't say how Nehemiah felt when they tried to discourage him, by they, when they tried to intimidate him, when they mocked him. It doesn't say anywhere that feelings had anything to do with anything, right? It didn't say how he felt. We know how mocking feels as Christians. We know how that feels, but we're not supposed to react on feelings and emotion, are we? But on faith. So his first response, they mocked, they threatened. Nehemiah went to God and prayed. When times of opposition come, God wants us to rely on him. And the purest way of expressing our reliance on him is through prayer. So Nehemiah's prayer here, his brief prayer, um, gave God a reason to show mercy and to come against his enemies. Uh, Nehemiah recognized that this was God's cause, not his own. Verse 6, so we built the wall. And at that point in history, that was about maybe, uh, from what I understand, about a month, maybe 30 days, they were about half they finally joined these open gaps that were in the city wall, finally joined the wall together and maybe got it half to its height. So they were halfway done. They had Jews working all around, families and those ready just in case the enemy attacked while they were working. So verse 6, we built the wall. The entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the, for the people had a mind to work. Here's a very important point about being unified in God's mission, God's purpose, when he gives us a work to do, being unified. And those who are in your church, your family, your ministry, whatever you are a part of, doing something for God, it's so important to have a mind to work and to be committed to that, to completing that work that he gave us to do, which he promises to do in us individually too, by the way, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Um, it's a gift. A mind to work is a gift. Some of us with ADD and short attention spans know <laughs> how easy to squirrel. <laughs> you know what I mean? We know how important a mind to work is. Focus, focus. But uh, that mind is exactly what the enemy comes against, isn't it? Discouragement. Intimidation. Mocking. Fear. No significant job will be accomplished until the people of God can do it together and unified. And we're divided today in, our, in the church, in the country. Um, our culture needs Christ. And we've got to be reminded so many people are dying without hope. Even now, they're dying without hope. And we've got this incredible God and this amazing message of reconciliation that he wants to reconcile the world unbelievers to him and use us 
as ministers of reconciliation. So I'm going to pause and, say, and ask, are we ambassadors for Christ or are we secret agents? Are we Christ's ambassadors? Everybody knows when we're out in public or wherever we are, work, play, <laughs> on our social media, everybody knows who we represent. Are we ambassadors for Christ or silent witnesses? <clears throat> so Satan wants to destroy those who have a mind to work. He wants to make us feel defeated, passive, discouraged, and isolated. Isolation has reaped much damage in these last four or five months in America, hasn't it? Isolation. Think of the elderly. Think of those in the nursing homes. Think of those living alone. Think of those who are just fearful. Maybe don't have, they don't have COVID-19. They, they don't know anybody with COVID-19, but they're just fearful, so they're not going to leave the house. Now, for Christians, how do you respond? Could God be testing our faith? Could he? Could he be using this to test the faith of the church? And for those, now, I don't know how many people would, will eventually come back and fill the rest of the seats here, um, Maybe some will never come back. So what does that tell us? Maybe God is separating the sheep from the goats as well. He's not only testing our faith. He's not only refining us. I don't like being pruned, do you? <laughs> but what does he say? He who bears fruit, I'm going to prune you so you will bear even more fruit. Fruit that will last. What's that? Beyond our lives, eternal fruit. What does that mean? Getting people saved with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, an important takeaway from Nehemiah's prayer in verse 4 of chapter 4 is that he asked God to take out his enemies. <laughs> what did God do? He answered by taking care of the people. Right? He didn't take out the enemies, he gave them strength. When they, even when they were halfway done with the great work that they were doing, he encouraged their hearts and gave them strength to work and to endure. <clears throat> so this is another example, of course, how God's ways are above our ways. When we have enemies come at us, <laughs> I know, come on now, admit it. Sometimes we pray, God, take them out. <laughs> come on, God, wipe them out. Do not blot out their sins. Don't forgive them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, am I the only one? Come on now. Okay, I'm, I see a few heads nodding. The rest of you repent later. Um, I know, I know. Um, this is another example. God says, I'm going to give you what you need. Just trust me, church. Trust me. Individual, brother, sister, trust me. Am I the sovereign God or not? Trust me, church. Hey, he's getting his megaphone now. Hey, United States of Entertainment, trust me. Look up here. Take a break from your football game or whatever else you're doing. Please, trust me. That's what he wants, faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. 
so he gives us strength to fight. He doesn't always stop our enemies. He won't stop the mocking. He won't stop the ridicule. He won't stop the threats. He won't stop the, you're hateful, intolerant, bigoted, homophobic, you're racist, you're, you know, go on down the list. Come on. Give it to me. I've heard it all. I don't receive it and I don't believe it and God knows and I answer to him. Let's have a conversation. If you really believe that about Christians, let's have a conversation. Can we debate without you getting defensive and saying, homophobe, hatred, intolerant. The preachers of tolerance are most often the most intolerant. All we can do is say, God bless you. I hope you turn to him. I'd love to have that conversation with you about what really matters in life. Can we talk about worldview? Because if you're coming at me with all these accusations, I understand that maybe we're, we have different worldviews that are separate. Can I talk about some of these things that are important in this life and in America and in the church? So here's another point. Um, the work was half finished. This can be when we've got to work for God. It can be an exciting time. It can be a challenging time. But it's a dangerous time because it's, if it's been a long process, you can lose a little bit of steam and enthusiasm. And you might, if you're tired and hungry and whatever else, you might open yourselves up to some discouragement. So it was a dangerous time right here for the Jews. Much had been done. They connected the wall. They filled the gaps. But it was only halfway built. So fatigue and discouragement were ready to set in if given an opportunity. So now I'm not as much of a football fan anymore. Um, uh, God convicted me about six years ago. I shared that story here before about what happened. Um, but halftime adjustments. It's time for the, the Jews to make a halftime adjustment, right? They got the wall half built. Halftime adjustments and encouragement and refocusing and rejuvenating are often more important than preparation and pregame speeches for the game, right? Make those adjustments when you need to. Adjust as you go, but keep that faith and endure. So verses 7 and 8, the conspiracy to attack the work. It's clear that the work of God makes the enemy furious, angry. What, what, what did it say? Very indignant. Not just indignant, very indignant. <laughs> um, so he often rages against the progress being made when God's people are committed to work or to do something, to um, confront evil while impacting a lost world for Christ. It's not a bad thing to make the, den the enemy angry, right? If you have no warfare in your life, I don't think you're on the enemy's radar, man. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, what a year it's been for most of us, huh? Um, but God's sovereign over everything that's happening. Everything. So we notice this point, too. The enemies didn't actually attack. They just talked about it. They sent threats. They even said, hey... At any moment where you're not ready, we could come from any point in the wall, at the lowest points of the wall that aren't built up, we could come at you. That's my paraphrase of what the enemies said. We, at any point, we could come at you, you won't even know what hit you. But they never did. 
Isn't that interesting? So they could have freaked out and said, yeah, we can't possibly protect this big, vast city. We're so spread out. And they could have folded, but they didn't. Um, Sanballat and Tobiah were hoping that the threat, the rumor of the attack, uh, would be enough. Um, you know, the, the scripture says that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Doesn't say he will devour you. It doesn't say the enemy is a lion. It's an intimidation tactic. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour because discouragement and isolation and fear can devour you. And the enemy wins. But he's not a roaring lion. Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? It's Jesus Christ, the victor. And the scripture says God always causes us to triumph in Christ. So they were hoping that the threat would be enough. Um, we hit the same strategies are used against us today. The threat, fear, the unknown. Even when nothing actually happens against us. Remember Jesus in Matthew 24 when the disciples came out and, and said, what, what, what are the signs of the end times? When will these things take place? He said, watch out that no one deceives you. And he went on through this list of end times signs. Remember one of the one, ones most of us remember? There will be wars and rumors of wars. Ding, 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 ding. Rumors. What does that mean? What did Jesus mean by rumors of wars? If the enemy can uh, make you think there's a fight coming, you might give up before any, he needs to do anything else. Rumors of wars. The fear could get the best of you. In some cases, the enemy never even intended to attack. Now, we don't know here. We don't know. But think about Russia. Think about some of these other countries that send out spies they'll send out a fake radio transmission that we've got ships spread out in a certain part of the ocean right and someone that intercepts this transmission might go did you did you hear that they're they're spread out there they, they could surround us they're, they just want to create a rumor of a war to intimidate the enemy to make them back off isn't that fascinating? Rumors of wars. So in this situation, it's not a war, but it, well, it would be a, a battle, an attack, could turn into a small war if the enemies of God, Sambalat, Tobiah, and the others were to attack around the city of Jerusalem. That could have turned into a war because they had weapons, they had armor, they were ready, they had the trumpet blast ready to go next to Nehemiah at all times. They're ready for a fight. But the rumor of the attack didn't intimidate them. They didn't let that get the best of them. So they, they also try to create confusion. This is an important strategy of Satan, too. God is not the author of confusion, right? Satan is the father of lies. Is there any confusion in the church today? 
false teachings, false information, confusion, whether that be about worldview or a doctrine, right? The enemy. We are not unaware of the enemy's schemes and tactics. So how did the Jews prepare for battle and defend themselves? God allowed the opposition to continue. For some reason, he didn't stop the threats and the intimidation. Uh, he, but he was delighted that his people, two things, they drew closer to God while they were doing the work. What is that when we're doing some work? We get, we get a little bit of satisfaction knowing that we're doing a, God's work. We get a little bit of fulfillment. But when we draw closer to him, what a sweet place to be, knowing that you're in his will and doing his work. Threats can come from the outside, from left and right and behind and before. But he is with us. He is with you. What does he say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Walk by faith and not by sight. Endure. So it can develop a deeper trust than before. When you trust him in the midst of threats, opposition, circumstances, hard times, when you get through that, you're stronger. Stronger than you were before you went in. That's one of the reasons why God doesn't always take away the trial, the pain, the thorn, the attack, right? So where are we? Verse 10. Oh, one more thing, one more thing. This decision is powerful in verse 9. I don't want to skip over this. My goodness. What did he do? One of the things he did we set a guard against them day and night. Day and night. They're ready. We set a guard against them. What's a guard? They just, on this big vast wall around the entire city of Jerusalem, did one person, one guard sit there with a lantern on the wall? No, a guard means a, a squad, a squad of either, I think, soldiers. But yeah, basically that's it. You know, when you're defending your keep, your soldiers, he set a guard day and night while the people were working. Families were working. What time is it? Okay. I just want to share this one thing about the resurrection. When, uh, when Pilate posted a guard, um, jo- uh, who, the Jews went on Saturday and said, hey, you know, there's a rumor that, that they might come and steal his body or that the, he said he was going to be raised from the dead and, and the tomb was going to be empty. We need, to, we need to guard the tomb so that Jesus, this Jesus won't, you know, fake people out and fool everybody and, and the disciples will lie. So Pilate said, take a guard. He didn't mean one person. A guard was a squad of soldiers. Because in another place, two different parts of the Gospels, Mark and I think Luke says, after the resurrection and the earthquake and the women came to the tomb, the guards went into the city and told Pilate and told the Jewish leaders what had happened. The guards. Wait a minute. It said they posted a guard, but then it said the guards. So the Bible is contradicting itself. No, you have to understand. A guard is a squad. Okay? Guards. So set a guard before them day and night. So this decision sent a powerful message, not just to encourage the people. All right, we've got people guarding the wall while we're working. But it discouraged the enemy. 
There's a twist, huh? Sometimes your strategy and your reaction to prepare and take action, the enemy's going to say, ah, it didn't work. Couldn't discourage him. Couldn't make him fear. They just set a guard around the whole city, day and night. Can't, no surprise attack now, right? You need to set a watch, Christian. Uh, when you see an area of your Christian life that needs attention, praying is great. Oh, God, help. Whatever your prayer is. But you also need to take action. Faith and works. And sometimes you need to set a guard, set a watch against the enemy. So now we're in verse 10 where it says, and we're, we're almost done. Uh, the strength of the laborers is failing. Now, now wow, oh, now, there's, now there's people from within starting to complain and starting to lose heart, and the work is so vast. Judah, oh my goodness, the greatest tribe out of the 12 tribes. And Judah said the strength of the laborers is failing, and there's so much rubbish that we're not able to finish. We're not able to build the wall. So now they took care of the outside threat by setting a guard and they're ready and they're working and they've got their, their weapon in one hand, they're working with the other. Now internal strife. Oh, God's people, right? Not much has changed <laughs> in the church today. Internal squabbles and disagreements and right, Steve? Oh, you got a biggest smile, I know. I know what you're thinking. Um, so... What's interesting, the walls were under construction, but part of the work was not just building the wall. The ruins of the walls in the city of Jerusalem laid waste for a hundred years. The ruins, the walls that have been torn down and burned, the city was burned, right? So there were ruins and rubble, massive stones everywhere, and then in some cases they were using it as a garbage dump. Well, there's the, the rubble, just throws, throw junk or garbage there. So they were clearing rubbish and stones to clear out the spot where the, the wall was so they could build on the place of the old walls. The rubbish had to be taken out. Think about our own lives. Before you can build on that foundation, the rubbish has to be taken out of your life. That's pretty profound. Didn't you guys get that? <laughs> so nothing much can be built for God's glory unless the rubbish is cleared off or swept away as well. So just a, a question as you leave, what needs to be removed from my life? Rubbish might not be something physical. It might be a habit. It might be a time suck. It might be a wasteful whatever thing you do. It might be a hobby. I don't know. If you have six hobbies, maybe cut three. <laughs> you know, how are you using your time? Ephesians 5, are we as the church, as individual Christians, are we redeeming the time? So there was a challenge from the, from the outside. Now there's a challenge from the inside. But how did God's people respond? Verse 13 and 14, Nehemiah basically organized the defense, basically said, hold the line, hold the line. I love these verses, and I'm just going to read a few more from chapter 4, but these, I love these two verses, 13 and 14. Therefore, 
I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. I set the people according to their families with their swords, spears, and their bows. And I looked in rows and said to the nobles, to the leaders, to the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So Nehemiah could have done nothing. He could have uh, said, you know, or, or the people could have responded, well, you know, we're just trusting the Lord and not, not, not done any of the work, not prepared the defense, not set a guard. They could have just trusted the Lord, saying they trusted the Lord, but not taking action on what they said. We've done that. I've done that in my life before. I say, I trust you, God, but then I don't take a step of faith. I trust you. Or we're just trusting the Lord. Well, the wall is not going to be magically built on its own, and the enemy will not be defended by you just saying, oh, I'm just going to trust in the Lord. <laughs> so we hear this a lot in a lot of situations today, by the way. Um, uh, Lord's will be done. Well, if they attack us, they attack us. <laughs> you know, almost like a fatalistic, but that's not when we pray the Lord's will be done. The prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed that, surrendered, trusted God, and he didn't just stay in the garden. He went to the cross. So when we pray, well, Lord, your will be done, and do nothing, are we really We're trying to convince ourselves maybe that God just wants us to do nothing? I don't think that's the way it, it is. I don't think that's the way it should be, but Nehemiah could have panicked. He could have done nothing. He could have panicked. But what he did do was wisely and calmly trust God in the midst of the storm from outside the walls and from inside the walls. He trusted God, and he set a guard. He set a plan, had a plan, wise, practical things that God would have him do to get to that victory, to get to the wall completely built. And they got there. But what was the result? In 4.15, verse 15, the enemy shrink back. What a beautiful verse of scripture after seeing what came against these people. When our enemies heard, third time it said that, when they heard that it was known to us, their plan, right? And that God had frustrated their plan. It doesn't say anything. The enemies just said, ah, they threw up their hands. It doesn't say that, but that's the idea it gives us here. The enemies, doggone it, those Jews found out, and now they're prepared more than ever. They have a mind to work or something. I don't know. It's like they're working for a greater cause. Then all of us returned to the wall, each to his own work. Verse 16 through 18, from that time on, from that time on, this was the plan to finish Get to the finish line. Half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. Why would you put on armor if you're not expecting a fight? Why would you carry bows, shields, if you're not willing to fight, if, if it's not real? It was a very real threat. And then those who built the wall, those who carried burdens, I love that. One hand, they worked at construction. The other, they held a weapon. That's what we're, we're at that point today, I think. We're working to build, not build God's kingdom here because the kingdom will come when Jesus returns. It is not here. 
but his kingdom come, his will be done. We are here to do the work, preparing for his return. Right? The coming kingdom. We are to do the work of evangelism, the gospel, you know, shining light in the darkness, exposing the darkness, confronting evil, which is not fun, with the truth. Confronting evil with the truth. Um, So one takeaway, or another takeaway, I should say, we need to be armed with that same attitude today. Prepared. Working. Praying, but working. We need to always be ready, clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, always wearing the armor of God. In fact, yeah, we'll, we'll go there in a minute. I just want to go over, just, just refresh our memories on the armor of God. But, um, and ready for that final trumpet blast that will gather us together with the Lord. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament, one of, one of my top ten, the resurrection chapter. starts off with the gospel, then it talks about the resurrection body. In a, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, we wait for the blessed hope. His appearing will be much sooner than we think. We've got work to do, though, first, don't we? We've got work to do. God doesn't have us here just to be comfortable, to be, I don't know, going through whatever we want to go through, just to complain or to get through this life. I don't know. I think he has work for us to do. And I think we need to pray and ask God what that work is. As individuals, maybe as a family, but as a church, don't isolate, infiltrate. Don't isolate, infiltrate for Christ. Um, I don't usually use analogies from TV or movies. But there's one that I remember from the Lord of the Rings that um, King Theoden was, was afraid to face the enemy knowing that you know, he could lose some soldiers, lose some people. And Aragorn said, uh, oh, King Theoden said, I will not risk open war. Do you, do you remember that? What was Aragorn's response? I love it. And this is an application for our lives, friends. If you're a Christian, we have a very real enemy of our soul. Aragorn said, open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. Open war is upon you, friends. You see the darkness in our culture. You see the divide in the world, in the country, in the church. You see the enemy trying to kill, steal, and destroy Open war is upon us, whether we would risk it or not. So, to fight the good fight of faith in Christ for truth, we need to know what his word teaches and then apply what we know. But let's close by just reading Ephesians 6, starting verse 10. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there. But now in light of what we just read and what they went through in Nehemiah's time and building the wall and the warfare and the opposition... This is, and, and them having, some of them having armor and they all had weapons. This is, is talking about spiritual warfare, but sometimes it works in, in the physical and the natural and the spiritual. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to take your stand or stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers 
against the powers, against the wild forces or the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in, in the heavenly places, and therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That helmet in verse 17. Remember how discouragement can come to our minds? He tries to discourage us with our thoughts and then giving in to fear. That helmet not only protects us from the thoughts of, you know, the guard our thoughts and our hearts and our mind, but salvation. Remember what we said earlier? If the enemy can discourage you that you don't have the assurance of salvation, that helmet is important, isn't it? The helmet of salvation. It should be permanent almost. We sleep with our helmets on. <laughs> we, sleep, we eat with our helmets on. That helmet of salvation. We are saved. We have the assurance of eternal life. In fact, John, I think it's 1 John 5, but don't quote me on that. It says in a couple different places, this is the assurance that we have from him, that if we believe, we have eternal life. That's the assurance that we have from God. So work with one hand. Keep your weapon in the other hand. Know that the enemy, he will not relent. But his days are numbered. The Bible tells us the enemy knows his time is short. And there's a verse, I think Romans uh, 16 um, says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Oh, looking forward to that day, right? The God of peace. Wait a minute, peace? Crush? That doesn't sound like it goes together. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to apply what we know from your word to be true. And God, give us a mind to work. It's so easy to get weary so easy to get overwhelmed and even distracted, Father, and sometimes discouraged. But Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen our hearts and our, our minds. Help us, Lord, do what you call us to do. Just one day at a time. That's all we can do anyway. Help us to walk by faith, not by sight. Help us to step one step, one foot in front of the other. Will you, you promise to direct our steps, Lord? We pray, Holy Spirit, you'd guide us in every interaction we have with people. Give us the words to speak. You promised to do that. Help us, Lord, know how to respond to each person with faith, with grace, with truth, with their words seasoned with salt, seasoned with grace. Thank you, God, for calling us to serve you. Thank you for each one of us here. We praise you that we are saved, we are sealed in Christ. We thank you that we are delivered, we're redeemed, we're sanctified. Thank you for your truth, your word is truth. Continue, Lord, in our hearts, working 
the things we need to work out in our own individual lives. Thank you for calling us to a greater work than just being comfortable or that just taking it easy. Um, renew our minds, Lord. Help us to be transformed. And uh, thank you for giving us strength. We can do all things through you. Bless each one of my brothers and sisters here and those listening to the message online. Um, we pray, Lord, for renewed hope to those who are discouraged, those who are hurting, Lord, touch them, those who are struggling in any, uh, with any health issue, Lord. Your healing power, touch them right now. Holy Spirit, heal them, touch them. For all of us, Lord, renew our lives according to your word and strengthen us for the task that you give us. Help us to unite and have a mind to work as the body of Christ, Lord. Help us to rebuild. What can we do? Let's do our part, Lord. Help us do our part to rebuild the walls, to defend from the enemy, and also be ready when he comes to attack. We love you. We thank you for the victory. In Jesus' name, amen.